welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a podcast for the soul and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, Dr. Nikos, here with a very special dialogue. This is one that I'm really excited about because, well, for a lot of reasons. It's not often, though, that I read a book, whether it's a philosophical book or a spiritual book or, or not, that I feel I, I want to just give copies to a lot of people and recommend it very strongly because some of the things that I read are really for a more narrow audience for a variety of reasons. And other things might be informative, but might might not be so exciting that I just think, well, everybody should read this. But this is, I read a work this year, well, I started uh, last year. It just came out last year. And I found it to be so exciting because it is such a great introduction to, to e- ecology, becoming eco-literate, but it's not like an introductory book. It's called Smokescreen. And the subtitle is Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. And now, on first thought, you might say, well, Nikos, you're up there in the in the Maxareja, the Santa Cruz Mountains, and of course you might be quite interested in wildfire. But this is a book that uh, applies for people, well, first of all, anybody who is affected by forests needs to know what, what their reality is. How do we relate to them? What's their nature? And uh, there are fires in forests all over the world. So this is something that has just the notion of the, what's the relationship between fire and forest. And then the ecological teachings that we get when we contemplate just one rich example, like forests, which are so rich, when we begin to understand them with greater intimacy, we become much more eco-literate. Now, I often say in my work that education in the dominant culture exists to protect people from philosophy and the arts, to keep them away from it. Because if you had really good exposure to philosophy starting as a young person, by the time you were considered fully educated, you just wouldn't put up with most of the nonsense that goes on in the dominant culture. Another way of saying that, and this book really gets to it, is the purpose of education in the dominant culture is to keep people away from nature and understanding it. Because when we really understand it, something opens in us and and we begin to want to live differently. And so I'm really excited. There are just so many interesting things. This is a book that I wish we could go page by page, but we won't. But I'm so excited to have uh, Chad Hansen with us. And um, he is, I'm going I'm to read his official bio, but I want to say one of the things that's so marvelous is, is his history. He was uh, born and raised in, in California. And this is just a person who spent a lot of time in wild nature. And that's a different way of thinking even. We have good data on this, and maybe we'll touch on it later, what it means to spend time out in the wild and what that does to our thinking as we become more attuned to what the thinking of the forest is. But the official bio is uh, that Chad Hansen is a research ecologist and the director of the John Muir Project of Earth Island Institute. It's located in Big Bear City, California. Dr. Hansen has a PhD in ecology from the University of California at Davis with a research focus on fire ecology in conifer forest ecosystems. And he is the author of the 2021 book, Smokescreen, Debunking Wildlife Fire Myths 
to save our forests and our climate. And you can get that. It's a University of Kentucky Press, but you can get it at your wherever you like to get your books. He is also the co-editor and co-author of the 2015 book, The Ecological Importance of Mixed Severity Fires, Nature's Phoenix. I really love the subtitle of that book, and I haven't had a chance to start reading that one, but I, I, I just looked at the table of contents. I know that's not much, but I was excited. I, I want to look at that, too. He has published dozens of scientific studies and articles in peer-reviewed journals pertaining to forest fire ecology and climate change. Research by Dr. Hansen covers topics such as natural post-fire forest regrowth and carbon sequestration, carbon flux in wildland fires, current forest fire patterns and trends, fire history, habitat selection of rare wildlife species associated with habitat created by high-intensity fire, and adverse impacts to wildlife caused by logging. He became involved in forest conservation work after hiking the entire length of the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada in 1989 with his older brother and seeing firsthand the devastation to forests caused by the commercial logging program on federal public lands in the U.S., our land. The New York Times described Dr. Hansen as being on the cutting edge of ecological research. Dr. Hansen regularly authors opinion editorial articles that are published in national newspapers, including the New York Times, L.A. Times, and the Washington Post. Well, Dr. Hansen, thanks for joining me here on Dangerous Wisdom. We're going to talk about wisdom, love, and wildfire. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Great. Now, let's, uh, maybe we could start with what is the smokescreen? Can you paint us the picture of that myth? Here's the myth, and this is what you probably heard, and this is, and may, give it that good, compelling sound to it, Dr. Hansen. Tell us what the myth is. Sure. Yeah, if I was to, uh, and, I, and I talk about this in smokescreen, the, the myth has different subcomponents to it. It, it. It's made up of subunits. But if I was to describe it in, in one kind of cohesive total, I would say it goes something like this. This is what we're being told. Every single fire season, well, even even outside of fire season, uh, we're getting from uh, the logging industry, uh, from the U.S. Forest Service. And it goes like this, that our forests are overgrown. And they're overgrown because of environmental protections, too many environmental laws and all those pesky environmentalists that uh, sometimes like to enforce those federal environmental laws. It's preventing the loggers from getting in there and, and removing the trees and reducing the density of the forest and, and, re and removing fuel. And because of that, and because of a history of a century of fire suppression that has caused excessive fuel accumulation, we are now seeing catastrophic wildfires because of these overgrown forests. Too many live trees, too many dead trees, too many trees. And the catastrophic wildfires are destroying vast areas of wildlife habitat. The trees are being incinerated. The carbon is going into the atmosphere. The soil is being sterilized and nothing will grow afterwards. And the solution we are being told is to roll back environmental laws, to demonize those laws, to demonize environmentalists and to massively increase taxpayer subsidies 
by the tens of billions for a huge increase in commercial logging across public and private lands in this country, ostensibly to curb and stop catastrophic wildfires. That is the myth right there in a nutshell. And of course, I spend the entire book, Smokescreen, explaining why that is uh, not even just misinformation, it's actually disinformation, which is more purposeful and intentional. Oh, yeah. Now that, I'm telling you people, I know you might not think this is a page turner, man, because you just, your mind gets blown page after page by by the work that uh, Chad did in really going out to the field and verifying things and then also doing all this detective work, archival work. It's really so fascinating. Now, one of the things I have to say, I I have bought into parts of this myth, except for the, the what's funny, and some of you might listen and might relate to this, there's something really core that I, I have never bought into, and, and one is it's the basic framework of forest management. When I hear people say, oh, we're not managing the forest, I have always thought, you know, the forests have managed themselves for millions upon millions of years. Why in the world do we suddenly think they need us to do something for them? And then, but but what I never did was follow some of, some of those threads to ask some of the questions because one of the, of course I accepted. Aren't these mega fires worse? And I did what a lot of people did. I said, "Oh, Australia, you know, like I really felt so much, so, so much." Um, compassion for all the animals that I was told were killed. A billion sentient beings were killed. Uh, can you just start with uh, uh, some of these details about how destructive the fires are? Uh, I mean, I know the, the pieces, and I want to get to those because there, there, are, there are these different levels. But even just that, because I'm starting with my mea culpa, where I wrote a piece, you know, published it online, that, oh, here's a billion sentient beings, are we going to change our ways? Now, I never said, let's start logging, but this is used. But can you, I mean, is that is, are these things true, that the deer can't outrun it, the birds are dropping from the sky? Yeah, that's a that's a really important question. And I, I spend the first chapter of Smokescreen talking uh, in large part about that that very large recent bushfire season in Australia um, as an example of how this th- these myths about wildfire and, and the, the dangerous and counterproductive management policies that are flowing from those myths. It's not unique to the United States. It's happening all over the world. And so I have a lot of global examples. And of course, Australia is one of them. So, you know, one of the things we heard uh, during that bushfire season, and we've heard it here in the United States as well during a number of fire seasons, is this idea, you know, that, um, that, that the fires are moving so fast that wildlife just can't escape. They're, they're, the flames are, are just racing across the landscape that, that uh, even large mammals and birds, you know, just simply can't get away from the flames. And, um, you know, to me, this is a fascinating thing because, you know, it's a very persistent notion. We hear it um, echoed in the halls of Congress. We hear it uh, you know, articulated and read it in, in national newspapers um, <laughs> and um, that, you know, pride themselves on fact checking. And the thing is, all you have to do is anyone in the world, really, you can you can find this information online. It's agencies around the world can compile this and you can just see what the fire was doing on any given day, any large fire. You can see what the perimeter is and you can just simply look at the distance and do the math. And what, what you find is that even the largest fires in forest ecosystems, um, they're incredibly slow, incredibly slow on average, right? They can move faster somewhat over short periods of, of, of ground if there's really high winds, 
But even when they move really fast, we're talking about two, three miles per hour. About That's about the fastest they ever get. And that doesn't typically last very long, maybe a few hours at most. And even those rates are, you know, that's like a medium rate, a medium rate walk for a, for a human being, typically. Um, those rates are very fleeting and you know, they may last for, you know, a few minutes or maybe a few hours at most. Typically, on average, in a very large forest fire, they're burning um, about the course of the course of the fire that lasts maybe two or three months. They burn about one fiftieth of one mile per hour. Typically, even the big ones, the ones that people call intense, severe, catastrophic wildfires, sometimes one twentieth of a mile per hour, one fiftieth of a mile per hour, about the rate. And I talk about this in smoke screens. About the rate that an ant crawls across the forest floor, except just slightly slower. Yeah, that 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 was mind-boggling, and I still have to go and deliberately correct uh, my participation in that by writing about it. And again, I wasn't calling for certainly wasn't calling for better management. But I, I did really think, oh my goodness! Now there is one aspect of of intensity that that could be accurate. That we have to be. We don't want to demonize fire or anything here, but we want to acknowledge that the thing that you say is the the primary driver for how long a fire is going to burn, how much is going to burn, is something that has changed, right? And that would be climate and weather. I mean, those things are going together. You know, if if climate has changed the conditions to make them hotter, drier, maybe stronger winds in some areas, then we might see uh, some greater intensity from that in some cases. Yeah. And that's that's really the core message is that it's not about how dense the forest is. It's not about how many trees there are or how many dead trees or down logs. It's not about that. You know, overwhelmingly, it's about weather and climate and therefore also climate change. If you have a drought year and you have an ignition from some source and you have hot, dry, windy conditions, guess what? You're going to have a big fire. And it's going to be it's going to be a mixed intensity fire. You're going to have low and moderate intensity patches because fires are always variable. You know, they're, they burn cooler and slower at night because the temperature goes down and the relative humidity goes up. The winds tend to die down at night. Um, they burn more intensely, relatively speaking, during the daytime. But there's all kinds of things that influence how they burn. So they're always mixed. But if you've got a drought year and you've got hot, dry, windy conditions, you're going to get a big fire. It's not going to be stoppable. That's another myth, this idea that if we spend enough billions of dollars and if we have enough people out there with bulldozers and the air tankers and that bright red phosphate fire retardant, you know, that the, the evening news loves so much, um, that somehow that's going to stop the fires. And uh, the reality is, is that um, you can no more stop a, a weather-driven, uh, climate-driven fire than you can stand on a ridge and fight the wind. It is, it is as futile and, and pointless as saying we're going to fight the hurricane that's you know going to arrive you know and hit the coast in a couple of days. We don't talk about fighting the hurricane. We talk about evacuating. We talk about preparing and 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 uh, you know bolstering the structure integrity structural integrity of homes. We need to think about fires the same way um, because the reality is is that to the extent that forest density is relevant at all, it, it, and it is. It doesn't work in the way most people think. It works in the opposite way. Mm. And, you know, this has been studied to death. I mean, I, I've published, of course, a bunch of papers on this, and other groups of researchers have too. And whenever we've looked specifically at the question of how forests burn when they're denser, when there's more biomass, more trees, more dead trees, live trees, what we find is that forests that are denser typically burn at equal or lower intensities when fires occur. 
And that includes forests with a lot of dead trees and down logs. And then the reason is, is that trees, live or dead, and down logs even more so, they're fundamentally moisture reservoirs. They, stay, they, they are repositories of enormous amounts of water, and they buffer the winds. They slow down the winds that drive the flames because denser forests act like a windbreak. And they basically create cooling shade um, and, uh, and, and prevent the – they basically act as a buffer uh, against extreme weather that drives fires. And so the, the irony is, is when we remove trees from the forest through logging, uh, most of the carbon in those trees goes into the atmosphere almost immediately. Very little ends up in a lumber product. And I explain this in detail why that is in, in, in smokescreen. But of course, that makes climate change worse. And climate change <laughs> driving temperatures higher and exacerbating drought cycles um, can, of course, influence wildland fire. And so we're just shooting ourselves in the foot over and over and over, over, and over again. And it's really just a, it's really about, about money and politics. This is not about, these policies are not about science. And all the misinformation, disinformation that perpetuates these policies is fundamentally political and economic at its core. And that's what the public needs to understand. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll, we'll I want to circle back and talk about that because essentially this is what I refer to as the pattern of insanity that characterizes the culture is that the very approach to managing the forest is what makes the fires worse. And then you think you had better double down and do more forest management and more of all the other activities. So you're spending more money and so on. And it's just going to get worse as with we saw in paradise, which we'll, we'll get to. I wanted to start with maybe some of these aspects of the myth. So now one, and you've, you've touched on all of them, but let's maybe spend a little time with them. One of the parts of the myth is that um, the fires that we have are somehow larger and they've become unnaturally large. And that seems itself to have two aspects, which again, you've touched on. One is this buildup of so-called fuel, which as you point out is a loaded term. Yeah, that's what we're going to refer to. It's the woods, not a forest. It's fuel, not trees. And the second related notion is what we imagine both the forests and their fires to have looked like in the past. So yeah. do you think you could talk a little bit about what's the myth there? What is the myth about what these places look like before and what the fires look like before, what it's supposed to be like, so to speak? Yeah, yeah. This is, and this is so, so central because it really goes to the core of what a forest is. I mean, I think that a lot of this... It, a lot of these bad policies, a lot of these myths come from uh, a, a failure to understand what a forest is on the most fundamental level. Now, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute because, um, you know, to me, it's, it, it matters a lot. Um, but, but basically, it's, it's this. You know, as I mentioned, you know, climate change is influencing fires. Fires have become more common in forests over the past 20 years, and climate change is definitely a factor there. What's important, though, ecologically, what's, what's most central is where fires are now relative to where they were naturally before fire suppression and logging policies more than a century ago. And in, you know, for, for thousands and thousands of years and even millions of years before that. And what we, what we know now from many dozens of studies from many different groups of authors is that, and there's broad consensus on this, is that we still have less fire in our forests now than we had historically before fire suppression. And that surprises a lot of people um, to, to know that not only is that true, but that, that there's a broad consensus in the scientific community about that. We pretty much you know, strongly agree, even if we debate other things, we agree that we, we have less fire and we need more fire. And we also agree that it, 
it has become more frequent in recent decades. However, what's interesting and what I think is really cool and, and hopeful, and I, I, I emphasize this a lot in Smokescreen, is the hopeful nature, the positive nature of the emerging science, if we pay attention to it. And this is one example. What I think is so hopeful about this is as fires are becoming more frequent in our forest ecosystems, as we're getting inching closer to what we had historically, naturally, before fire suppression, they're not getting more intense. And that's really interesting because a lot of the assumption out there is if you have bigger fires, if you have more frequent fires, it's going to mean necessarily that they're going to burn hotter. They're going to be more intense. And what I mean by this is, 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 is simple. Any fire is a mix of intensities. It's got low intensity fire. It's got moderate intensity fire. It's got high intensity fire patches. Low intensity, the fire just kind of creeps along the forest floor. It consumes some pine needles and some leaves. Um, it uh, kills some seedlings and saplings, maybe some smaller trees in the sub in the lower canopy, but it doesn't do much more than that. Moderate intensity is a mix. It kills some mature trees. It doesn't kill others. Um, it kills most of the small trees, but not all of them. Um, so you've got a mix of live and dead trees and high intensity patches uh, are places where the fire kills most of the trees. And in some cases, all of the trees in patches. And so what you get is this mosaic of low, moderate and high intensity. That's been the case for millions of years in our forests. And it's the case now. And the assumption, though, is that if you have big fires and, and, as, and, and as, um, as, as years go on, that the fires are getting more intense. In other words, that the percentage of a given fire that burns at high intensity is growing. And what we're actually seeing is that's not true. We keep studying this over and over again. We keep publishing papers. We keep expecting it to go up, but it doesn't go up. In fact, it might be going down slightly, um, even as the total acreage that burns in a given year is going up a little bit year over year on average. Some years are really big. Some years are really small. But on average, that's what it's doing. It's, a, it's, a, it's an upward trend in terms of acres. But, you know, on average, even the biggest fires, they're 20, 25 percent high intensity, sometimes 10 or 12 percent, sometimes 30, 35 percent. But, um, you know, usually in that 20, 25 percent range uh, or so. And um, it's mostly low and moderate. doesn't matter. It could be a million acre fire and it's mostly low and moderate intensity. And so it's important to understand for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, we, we know we always had a mix of intensities. And from a number of reconstructions that we've done, and also early, early forest surveys from a century ago or more, when people were actually taking direct records before fire suppression and logging, is that um, in the Sierra Nevada, for example, just one example, but this is fairly common, that um, the percentage of the forest that was in that young regenerating phase after high intensity fire or some other you know, high intensity natural disturbance, it was typically in that 20 to 30% range, sometimes higher than 30%, you know, at the larger landscape scale. It could be higher at a local scale, watershed scale, it could be lower at a watershed scale, but on average it's in that 20 to 30%. And that type of natural disturbance Anything that kills most or all the trees, usually fire, but it can be drought and native bark beetles, it creates a unique forest habitat type that we call snag forest habitat. And snag forest habitat, it turns out, is comparable to old growth forest in terms of native biodiversity and wildlife abundance. It's actually one of the two most ecologically valuable and important and rich 
uh, of all the forest habitat types. And a lot of uh, wildlife species and plants have evolved to depend on snag forest. So when we know we had that 20 or 30% of the forest historically was snag forest, we, then the question is, well, what is it now? And it's interesting because even though it's gone up in the last 20 years, it's still about half or less than it was historically before fire suppression and logging. And the reason this matters so much is that in ecology, it's, it's about the natural range of variability. You don't want too much or too little, because even though fire is a good thing ecologically in forests, you can have too much of a good thing. There's lots of things in this world you can have too, too much of, even if it's a good thing. And so we don't want snag forest habitat to be 60% of the forest. That would be unnatural. We don't have any data that tells us it was that much at the larger landscape scales. It could be at small scales for sure, or, or higher. But at the larger scale, it was it was you know in that twenty to thirty percent range. Sometimes a little, you know a little more than thirty percent. But at the same time, if it's ten percent, and there's some big fires and there's a drought that brings it up to fifteen percent, we shouldn't lament that. We shouldn't we shouldn't mourn that uh, like a loss. We should celebrate it because it's getting closer to what the forest ecosystem and the native species that have lived there for millions of years need. And if we can get it over 20%, so much the better. Yeah, this, there's a lot that's interesting in what you're saying. One of the things that I would point out from my work, and this is influenced by Gregory Bateson's work, is that this is fire is an element necessary for the forest to think itself forward. It's part of the thinking of the forest. You know, it, once we get out of the notion that the, that the cognitive is restricted to the inside of skulls, in particular of the Homo sapien, and it doesn't occur anywhere else, we, we we have really clear science that we need to think of of mentality and and mind as something that's larger loops that transcend the barriers of skin. So the kind of thinking that the forest does, Bateson, who was a very serious scientist, said evolution is a mental process. And he was very deliberate about saying that. This was not some woo-woo idea for him. He's a very atheistic guy, really important thinker. And so we're trying to take this element of the forest thought out, and then the forest can't think straight anymore. And it's, as you say, it's evolved. I wanted to emphasize again, 75% still of the of the fire that we're seeing is not high intensity, you know, because we have that mental thing, we say it's only 20, no, 75% is, is not in that high intensity area. But I, I want to return back to, but to just this simple question, what is it that the current myth tells us th this, friends, is what the forest is supposed to look like, right? You know, this idea of the park-like yeah. forest. And this, friends, is what happens whenever uh, this is what the fire used to be like in these areas. Could you yeah. paint that part of the myth? Yeah, yeah. And that's that's really that's really key. Um, first of all, I'm just going to – you you said something that, that – that makes me want to, it makes me think about, you know, an experience that I've had a number of times that I think, you know, kind of underscores this, you know, the 75% that's low and moderate versus the 25% that's high intensity in a given large fire. I, I take people, you know, a lot of what I do is just take people into the forest, into these fire areas so they can see it, feel it, you know, touch things, see it, you know, firsthand, hear the sounds and smell everything, you know, and, and just experience it in a very, in a very, you know, personal tactile way. Um, reporters, you know, um, conservationists, uh, interested members of the public, lots of people I take in 
into these areas and we just spend a day out there. Um, but it's interesting to me because, you know, I always, we always find some kind of a meeting place, you know, like a little town that's, you know, nearby and we meet at a coffee shop somewhere or, you know, something like that. And we, and we get in the same car and we drive together and, and then, you know, we always talking and, and the, the question, it's amazing how often this question comes up, when are we going to get to the fire? And, and I have to tell people we've been driving through it for the past 35 minutes. Right. Right. And, and, and what, they, what they come to understand is that what we're driving to is, you know, a large high intensity fire patch somewhere within the interior of the fire, because there always are some. Um, but the great majority of the fire is something they wouldn't even recognize unless they were really looking closely at that eight inches of light char at the base of the trees. Yeah, yeah almost yeah. looking for it. Anyway, it's just, it's interesting to me because I think that's part of the problem is people don't realize they're in these large fires most of the time when they're actually walking or driving or camping. Uh, in them. Yeah. Yeah. But to go to your other question, sorry, I know that was a digression, but uh, no, not at all. Not at all. Because I think it's a theme we're going to get to. We're trying to, to begin to understand that fire is a creative force and that it has a place. It's just part of for millions and millions of years, it's part of the thinking of the forest. It, it knows how to how to work with that, just like water is. The trees need water; they need fire, and we don't understand that fully. Yeah, that's right. You know, as I talk about in Smokescreen, you know, this is fire in our forest is a process that goes back over three hundred and fifty million years. Right. This is deep, deep evolutionary history. Um, so, but to your question, because it's a really it's a really central thing, um, is this idea of this narrative, this sort of visual narrative that has been described and articulated over and over and over again to the point that it's almost made this indelible impression in people's minds. You know, they have this image in their mind of the natural historical forest. And so, uh, yeah, I want to I make sure I, I address your question. You know, that, that narrative, it goes something like this. You know, if you were to describe that mythical forest, um, it, it was very open and park-like um, historically. There were very few trees the trees were very, very widely spaced. Um, they were almost all live and green, and they were almost all big. There were very, very few small trees, very, very few shrubs, very few dead trees or down logs. And when fires occurred, they were almost entirely low intensity. They would just creep along the forest floor, and they occurred every few or every several years. And because they occurred every several years, they always consumed the pine needles and the twigs and the seedlings on the forest floor so that uh, they never accumulated and it was never really possible to have a fire that had moderate or high intensity fire effects. That's the myth. And the, and, and the reason that myth is so insidious and the reason the way it's used and frankly weaponized politically and economically is to say, ah, if we're going to restore our force to that I, 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 ideal that wonderful, perfectly natural, historical thing, what we're going to have to do is once again, roll back those pesky environmental laws, demonize those pesky environmentalists, um, ignore any contrary science and any scientists uh, who are presenting that science, or if, if you can't ignore them, if they won't shut up, well, then you know, demonize them too um, and, um, and use public funds to do it. Uh, and and get in there with chainsaws and bulldozers and remove most of the trees to restore our forests so we can have that, that natural structure, that natural look and natural fire regime again. And what we know now um, 
from decades of research and, and literally hundreds of scientific studies. You know, I, I wrote Smokescreen for non-scientists um, mm-hmm. specifically, but at the same time, it's all grounded in hard science. I have several hundred scientific studies, peer-reviewed studies cited in the endnotes, you know. Um, but we, so what we know from that body of science is that historically the forests were this real heterogeneous mix. Um, they were messy. They weren't open and park-like mostly. You know, yeah, there were places where it was big trees and they were mostly live and they were open. Um, in any given forest type, you know, it might have been 18, 19, 20% of the total in that area, in that forest type, you know, so it was part of the mix, sure. But there were also right next door, really, really dense forests um, that had lots of trees, live, dead, tons of small trees, hundreds and hundreds, even thousands per acre in many cases. Patches of dead trees from droughts and native bark beetles or high intensity fire patches, regenerating young forests coming up through the dead trees, what we call snags and the down logs and the shrubs. Um, Shrub patches were often 40, 50, 60% of the total, even in the forests that were mostly live. So this idea that um, that there was almost no understory and that uh, it was very, very few trees is, is, is completely contradicted by the, the current science. And yet those narratives persist because, again, they're politically and economically convenient for the industries and the agencies that profit uh, from logging. And, you know, it, I've done a lot of archival research on this, and I could certainly talk about that, too, if you're interested in terms of uncovering the primary historical sources to a lot of, you know, blood, sweat and tears in long days in the in the, in the National Archives. To, that's one of to the things out what's actually going on. Yeah, that's one of the things I really love, because the Forest Service is saying, look, you know, we've got this data. We had, you know, we had people out here, Forest Service people, they, they counted the trees. And, and then you said, well, you know, can I take a look at it? And they didn't want you to. But but you know, we, thankfully, we've got this freedom of information in the in the in the culture, and we have archives. And you were able to get special training to go in and handle it. And I was just astounded because you opened up this treasure trove of data. And the Forest Service is saying, well, the data says one thing: it supports our story of the park-like forest, not very many trees. And when you opened it up, tell us what you found. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Well, so I, my colleagues and I. Um, Primarily me, but I was joined by a number of my colleagues. Um, spent uh, many, many, many months, you know, really over the course of years in, uh, in the National Archives, working with these these old file boxes from 1910, 1911, 1912. Um, working with the primary documents after the training that you have to go through the National Archives, um, and uh, there's a whole process. You know, like there's you know you just actually as you're handling the documents, you know there's windows and you know you have to be observed. You know, it's it's really rigorous, and it should be. Um, and, and what we found is that this, this whole series of scientific studies that were published by scientists who are funded by the Forest Service, now, some of these are full-time government scientists, but a lot of them are actually university scientists who get two, $300,000 a year, in many cases, from the United States Forest Service. And, and the reason that matters is the, a lot of people don't realize this, but the United States Forest Service is in the commercial logging business. The number one land management thing the U.S. Forest Service does is sell public trees to private logging companies and keep the revenue for its budget. So in many ways, it's like the nation's largest commercial logging corporation, um, except that it's subsidized by taxpayers. And can we just insert there that that would make it the world's largest? 
I, that's possible. <laughs> Certainly one of the world's largest. Yes. Well, yes, because yeah. I mean, I want to return to this, but you do point out that that we do more logging even than Brazil. And so, you know, really, whatever else we want to say, though, it, it's like important for maybe people to recognize this issue that you do directly address that we've got, uh, uh, we've got a problem with the vocabulary we use. Now, you don't say this, but I would suggest that the U.S. Forest Service should probably be called the U.S. Logging Service. And especially when you think about the kind of things that we're about to talk about, where, where they're telling us, they're showing us a supposed science that says that their view is correct, and then you go into the archives looking at their own data. Yeah. <laughs> and, okay, so continue, though. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, I just yeah. wanted so to point I that out. I a little bit of background uh, about, you know, about the U.S. Forest Service and, and that yeah. aspect of the agency that a lot of people don't realize. And a lot of university scientists who publish in the field of forest and fire ecology who are funded by the Forest Service and then rarely disclose that, almost never disclose it. Um, I, I give that background because it's relevant to this story. <laughs> Um, so, as you mentioned, yes, uh, there was a series of these studies by these scientists, both agency and university scientists, who were funded by the Forest Service, saying, hey, look, we found this treasure trove of historical forest surveys from over a century ago. And what we found is that the forests were very, very open and park-like. They were very low density. There was almost no understory vegetation, very few small trees. And there were far fewer trees than there are now. Therefore, what we need to do is get in there with chainsaws and bulldozers and roll back those environmental laws and do a lot more logging. And that will restore the forests and bring fires under control and everything will be great. And so, you know, this is my field. I, I thought it was highly relevant and, and important research. I reached out to the authors and I said, I said, this is, you know, this is, these are pretty dramatic findings. Can, can you please send me, um, you know, the raw data, you know, the actual, the actual um, uh, PDFs of the, the records that you copied, because I knew at the National Archives, you can't remove those records, you have to copy them there. And therefore, they would have had digital copies of every single page, I asked them to send that and they refused, which is not something you tend to do in the scientific community, there's supposed to be even if you disagree, there's supposed to be a certain collegiality, and, and especially openness about data and data sharing. And so as a scientist, when someone tells me, no, I'm not going to let you see my data, I get very curious <laughs> and um, I, I it tends to motivate me. You know, it piques my curiosity. It doesn't make me go away. And so um, I, I decided to look at the data myself and, and, and go through the training and spend a lot of time in the National Archives looking through those very same historical file boxes from 1910, 1911, 1912. And what I found is that they had left out the vast majority of the data. In the studies they published, uh, in the first one, um, there was one particular area uh, that had been surveyed over a century ago, and they only published 6% of the data that was in these same file boxes. And, you know, there was no reason. It wasn't disclosed that they only published 6% and they excluded 94%. That was never mentioned in their studies. There was no methodology. You could say, well, that was totally different forest types or something. No, same forest type, same area. And so I looked at the 94% that they left out. And it turns out that it told a very, very different story. It told a story of forests that some sure were open, but that was the minority. Most were moderately or very dense. A uh, lot of small trees, seedlings, saplings, very high shrub cover, um, 
Lots of low and moderate intensity fire, sure, but also lots of high intensity fire, including big high intensity fire patches, hundreds of acres in size uh, or larger. And so we published this and uh, they attacked us for it, <laughs> which has been a, a common issue over the past uh, decade or more of uh, scientists who are funded by the Forest Service attacking a much larger group of independent scientists who are publishing politically and economically inconvenient data. I'm one of those scientists, but there are many more of us. Um, and of course, we published a reply and uh, we, you know, our, our findings were robust. Uh, we, 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 they they uh, said, well, there was this one category, this one small category that we misunderstood. And they were right. There was this one small category that was basically lands that had been patented and transferred into private ownership. Uh, and so we reanalyzed all of our data and we came to the same conclusion. It all made almost no change at all because it was a tiny percentage of the total. Point is, is they, they weren't really interested in finding out the truth. They were hiding the truth. And so then we looked at, at another group of, of their studies in the southern Sierra Nevada, further south, found the same thing. Bottom line is this, is that we found that when you included all the data, and it wasn't just the areas they left out, but they were also excluding data on small trees, even within the areas that they did include in their studies. There was a bunch of data on the backside of the same cards that they were looking at. It's hard to imagine they didn't turn the cards over. And all those hundreds of hours of research, they never turned the card over. It's hard to imagine. But um, on the backside of cards was all the data about the small trees. They only included the data about the bigger trees. And so when we included that, what we found is that historical forests were sev seven times denser in terms of trees per acre than they falsely reported in um, mixed conifer forest types. And they were 17 times denser in terms of trees per acre in ponderosa pine forest types, 17 times denser than they reported once we included all of the tree data. And not only that, they claimed that there was very little high intensity fire, maybe three or four or 5%. Well, they left out most of the data on that. There were maps of high intensity fire patches. There were physical descriptions with geographic coordinates about high intensity fire patches. When we included all that, it turns out it was about 22 to 27%, not 3% or 5%. And, um, and that makes a big difference in terms of our understanding about what the historical forests were and, and, what, and what we, how we should look at a given large fire now that might have 23% high intensity fire. Yeah, I mean, to say the least, it, it makes it's a totally different vision of what things are supposed to look like. It's just not even the same. You're not talking about the same thing anymore. And even I love the the point where you were saying, well, they the Forest Service people had they had divided it up into these uh, transects, and they're supposed to be looking on each side of themselves, counting the, the the trees. But it was so dense they couldn't even see, and so their concern was that they were substantially undercounting the trees. They just like there were places so dense they couldn't count far because they couldn't see more than uh, enough distance. You know, because the what were the transects about one hundred and thirty? Was what was one hundred thirty-two feet or something? Yeah, yeah. And this is this is really this is really interesting. I mean, this never occurred to me at first. We only figured this out that this was an issue because we were looking through these old historical file boxes. And you know, there's the there's the actual data cards. I mean, they had these physical cards that they were writing on, actually in pencil. And um, and so the, you know that's what that's what's the main thing in these boxes. But in these same historical file boxes are all these memos 
from early U.S. Forest Service managers back and forth to each other talking about the problems that they were experiencing. And we started reading these memos because they were trying to be thorough. And it turns out that they were using this system uh, to estimate tree density that we would never use now. You know, they were, it was a visual system. They were um, estimating the distance of their transects. And the transect is basically just like a kind of a long linear area that they survey. They're estimating the distance by pacing, just by walking, assuming like one step is one yard, basically. And they were estimating the width side to side visually. And these transects are, are you know, are, were supposed to be, in most cases, 132 feet wide. Problem is, is that, as you correctly said, the forests were so dense in so many cases, they could only see maybe 20 or 30 feet on either side. And so they would just record what they saw. The problem is, of course, is you're recording a much, much lower tree density for that area than it actually had. And, and they started figuring this out and they started actually doing some actual measurements and recording the true tree density and, and comparing that to the visual estimates. And they were realizing they were underestimating tree density by twofold, sometimes threefold. And so they kept saying, well, this is a problem. How do we correct this? And so there's all these angry memos to these, these poor forest surveyors, you know, about do it right and try to figure out how to do it. But they couldn't, they couldn't do it right because you can't see past what you can see past, right? If the forest is so dense and you can't see the trees past all the small trees and medium-sized trees and the shrubs and the understory, what are you going to do? So they, um, they completely abandoned the entire method ultimately after years of wrangling about it and, and, and fretting about it. And they adopted a plot system where the plot had fixed geography and, uh, and they would count everything within the plot. And basically, that's the type of system that many ecologists, including myself, still use today, is that kind of is that plot system. And, um, and the reason this matters, again, is because that was another method that underestimated historical tree density. And uh, so, I mean, there were, there were numerous compounded problems in this series of studies uh, published by the Forest Service that created a, an impression about historical forests, a sort of cartoonish impression that um, simply never existed. Yeah, I mean, this is just so astonishing. And it almost like defies um, belief that we wouldn't imagine, you know, that, I mean, we have other evidence, right, that there would have naturally been fires, lightning strikes, uh, you know, would, would have started a lot of fires. And why we thought that there, there just wouldn't have been or that there would have been this low intensity. But then now what we've got is this idea that we're going to do the controlled burn. So first, we're going to log to save the forest to make them look like they used to, but we have the wrong picture. So that's no good. But we also have the wrong picture of the fire. So now we're going to do a bunch of controlled burns. But that's not going to give the forest what it needs because that's not that wasn't the reality either, right? So now we're we're we might be doing all this low intensity burning of the supposed fuel that's supposed to be there and has a job to do, um, and that gives us this <clears throat> false sense of what it would mean to manage a forest. Now you you talk though too then about there's this issue that is misused in terms of what the frequency of a fire would be, that this too is like a, 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 a data-keeping problem. Can you describe a little bit about this issue of, you know, somebody says, well, what's the fire, fire frequency here and what, that's, what that means and what's a better way to think of it? Yeah. You know, um, 
I give a lot of examples of this in, in Smokescreen and, and try to just, you know, translate it and, you know, with anecdotal, anecdotal accounts and personal accounts, you know, to make it understandable to, to the reader. Um, but in many ways, these, these narratives, these myths um, that are causing so much harm about what historical forests were are, are in many ways based upon a simple mathematical error that was committed decades ago and then just kept getting committed over and over again by just inertia. Um, and it basically comes down to this. There's this concept in fire ecology called the fire return interval or FRI. And the fire return interval is this idea that uh, it's how free, basically it's how frequent a fire would occur on average in a given forest type historically before fire suppression. It's natural fire return interval. Uh, or fire regime. And the way that early researchers tried to figure out fire return interval is they'd go to an old growth forest, a forest with a lot of very large old live trees, and they would select the oldest and the largest of them. Let's say it's an area of a thousand acres, which is pretty common and uh, in these studies, and they would select, you know, a couple dozen, maybe sometimes more of these big old trees. And they would cut a cross section out of these trees. And, um, and then smooth it down and analyze the tree rings. And they would look for these little irregularities in the tree rings that indicated a fire scar. And then they would count the interval, how many rings, because they're annual rings in, in the conifers, how many rings there are in between fire scars. And they would figure, okay, that means that's, that was the fire. You know, uh, and, they would, and they would use this to figure out the fire return interval in the study area. Here's the problem. If that study area was, again, again, a thousand acres, and let's say you've got 20 study trees, big old trees that they're sampling, if even one or two of those in a given year would have a fire scar, they would assume the whole area burned. And that was the dominant assumption. It still is for a lot of people. A lot of people still, a lot of researchers. I mean, these are smart people, but they still haven't figured out that that's, a, that's actually a mistake. What we've come to understand through a lot of different methods to actually critically look at that is that that's only true in a small percentage of cases. Most of the time that these fires occur and create a fire scar on a certain percentage of the trees, these are little lightning spot fires. They might only be uh, five acres or even a quarter of an acre in some cases. They might be a couple dozen acres, but in most cases, they don't cover the whole thousand acres of that study area. Uh, maybe only 10% of the time the fires would do that. But if you're assuming every time there's any fire scar any, on any tree in that study area, that the entire study area burned, what's going to happen is you mathematically will assume fire was happening much, much more frequently than it really was. And so what happened is, based on this mathematical error and this misunderstanding of these little spot fires that don't go very far, but maybe scar just a few trees, um, they uh, researchers assumed that in many of the forest types in this country, including like ponderosa pine forests in the West, that fires were occurring every six years, every 10 years, every eight years, historically before fire suppression, on average on any given patch of ground, on any given acre. When we realized the spot fire problem and we developed methods to throw out the inaccurate and outdated fire return interval concept, we replaced it with something we called fire rotation interval. And rotation interval is the actual frequency of fire on any given acre. When you account for the fact that spot fires don't burn everything, um, it's the actual accurate 
thing. What we figured out is in these forests where they assumed that it was burning, the fires were burning every six or eight years historically. It was actually uh, more like every 30 or 35 years or 40 years or more in many cases. Now, that's still more frequent than it is now. In most forests, you know, our, our current fire frequency on average in terms of fire rotation interval, the actual accurate method, um, is still, you know, more than 100 years uh, for all fire intensity, you know, all fire intensities, um, in many cases, much longer than that. So we still have less fire. But the point is, is that when they assumed, based on this mathematical error, that fires were occurring every six years or eight years, uh, and in some cases, they assumed it was occurring every two years or four years. They would assume, therefore, that if fire happened that often on any given patch of ground, on any given acre, how could you have many shrubs or small trees? Of course, the fire would always be killing the little seedlings. Fire, the forest would have always been open and park-like, back to this mythical narrative. And it was this mathematical error was used to support this this myth. I think it actually started just in very honest ways. It was just an honest mistake, but it became politically and economically useful over time to, to, to support and perpetuate the catastrophic wildfire myth. Yeah, it, it definitely feeds that narrative because if you're having fires as frequently as two, four, six, eight years, they've got to be low intensity. We don't have high intensity fires. But even right now where I sit on this peak where I sit, if anybody was is having trouble, because I know we're talking, we're essentially talking about some, something that's statistical, but I can tell you, I can look and visually see a ridge that burned two years ago to the north. I can look and see a ridge that burned uh, a year ago to the west. The ridge I'm on hasn't burned for 50 years or more. I mean, there hasn't been fire here. So if we took this whole area and we said, oh, look, there's a fire every, every, every year. There was one here and one here. That'd be completely wrong as far as this patch of forest that I'm in. But that could lead us to think that, you know, well, then that must mean these are all low intensity. But then, because it also goes to, if you've got a very long fire return interval, then you're saying, well, heck, that's had 50, 60, 75 years to build up fuel, quote unquote. And so, well, that's got to be terrible. And, but, but, you, but as you say, well, no, because it would be a mosaic. Some patches would be more, some patches would be less. And that, too, is, is something that people, especially if you live in the Bay Area, you know this. Even in, within the little area of San Francisco, we, when I lived there, we used to say, you don't like the weather, just take a walk. I mean, if you're in the outer Richmond, close to the coast, it's foggy, it's cold. You go to the Mission, it's sunny, it's warm. And th these are some of the, and also density as part of it, right? Because where places are denser and there might be more moisture, these are reasons why there's going to be that mosaic, because microclimates, it's weather and other conditions that are going to determine whether or not that fire can, can grow, how intense it'll be. Yeah, absolutely. You know, topography influences things, uh, the microclimate and microclimates are influenced by topography. Um, and, and then, of course, you know, it, it, over everything is the weather and the climate. Um, and, you know, yeah, it's, 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 it's really key to, to, to understand this because it brings everything into focus because you realize then that, that forests were not burning every few years or every several years historically. Um, they were burning every few decades, even in the most, even the more frequent fire forest types on average, and sometimes several decades they were between intervals. Um, and of course, th those are averages, right? So that means, you know, if, if the average was 40 years for a given forest type, historically, 
um, you know, you're going to have a lot of variability because that's the nature of averages, right? Um, you know, it might burn within, you know, 12 years um, in, in one area, and it might not burn for 123 years in, in another place. Um, and then, you know, it might burn, you know, six years apart, and then it might not burn again for 42 years. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of variability. And you know, one of the things that is really important and interesting about this is that this idea that we hear um, that if a forest hasn't burned in a century, for example, um, that because of fuel accumulation, it's going to burn much more intensely. I talked about this a little bit earlier, but this is another thing we've studied to death. And the overwhelming weight of science, including my own studies, but lots of others have looked at this too, overwhelming weight of science finds that if a forest hasn't burned in over 80 years or over 100 years, even if it's natural historical fire frequency in terms of the real method, fire rotation interval, if its natural frequency was 35 years, let's say, and it hasn't burned in 100 years, it doesn't burn more intensely. You know, the narrative, the myth is, of course, it's going to burn much more intensely, um, but it doesn't. In fact, they, they often burn at lower intensities, those forests that haven't burned in over a century. And it may seem so counterintuitive to a lot of people uh, because we know that fire does influence subsequent fire. Um, if a fire burned uh, five years earlier in a given area and then another fire comes through, you know, five years later, it's going to influence the previous fire is going to influence the subsequent fire. We know this, you know, whether it's prescribed fire, whether it's a previous wildfire, whether it's Native American cultural burning, um, previous fire is going to influence subsequent fire. The thing is only for a certain period of time. It may only be three years or two years. It may be 10 years. Depends on the forest type and the growing conditions, but it's not forever. And, and it's all about really the, the reaccumulation of pine needles and dry leaves and small twigs on the forest floor, uh, maybe some dry grasses. That's really what it is. It's not about the tree density so much. Um, and in fact, the tree density, if anything, has a suppressing effect on fire because of the things we talked about earlier, the windbreak effect that denser forests have, the cooling shade that denser forests have because of that higher canopy cover. And so what we find is that the influence of previous fire wanes after several years. And after that, it's kind of flat. It really just doesn't matter much. It's just about what the weather and the climate are doing at that point point in time. Well, let me segue there to the Paradise Fire. Now, someone might say, well, Chad, that fire was incredibly intense. And apparently the tragedy is that we did what the bad science says we should do. Can you talk a little bit about that, about that fire and what was going on there? Yeah, this is something that matters to me a lot, and not just as a scientist, but it matters to me personally, because... Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've most of my adult life, I've, I've lived in um, in the mountains, my wife and I um, in forested areas. We lived in the northern Sierra Nevada for 11 years, um, now live in the mountains of Southern California. And mountain towns for uh, many years now, especially the last 20 years, have been fed a steady diet of this narrative, this catastrophic wildfire narrative. They've been told that the reason fires burn or burn, you know, bigger or more intensely is because they're overgrown, overstocked. There's too many live trees, too many dead trees. And that if we remove a bunch of trees through these logging operations, um, I know there's all these euphemisms. And I talk about that. I have a whole chapter devoted to the euphemisms, <laughs> you know, like 
thinning and fuel reduction and restoration. Resilience, and yeah, restoration. Resilience, yeah. Forest, forest health. You know, there's a whole series of them. And it's all just the same commercial logging. Um, but but these communities were, were fed a steady diet of this, and they believed it. They really believed it. And it got more complicated because there are a lot of people in these communities were in the logging business as well. Some of these are towns with logging mills, you know. So it's very, very um, complex for people in these towns. But they're told that, you know, if if the if they promote and and support these logging projects out there in the wildland forests, on public lands, on private lands, distant from the homes, hundreds of meters away, sometimes miles away from the, the edge of the town, that's somehow going to be a fuel break or a fire break. It's going to stop the fire. And the narrative is that it'll make the fire burn so much less intensely. It'll just creep along the forest floor in these so-called thinned areas where so-called fuel reduction happened, that the fire suppression forces can easily put the fire out and the fire will never reach the town. And it's supposedly in order to do that, if a previous fire occurred, well, wherever it burned more intensely, remove those dead trees because that's fuel. Um, and the, the areas that haven't burned or burned low intensity, remove most of the live trees because that'll, that'll be removing fuel and, and reducing the density of the forest. And all that supposedly is going to curb fires and save the towns. These towns were told this over and over and over again. These logging projects would save them on public and private lands. Logging companies told them this. The United States Forest Service told them this. This is in public documents. And I cite them in my book, Smokescreen. And so what happened is, you know, people thought, well, we're covered, right? You know, we're, we're listening to companies that we trust, logging companies. We're listening to an agency, the U.S. Forest Service, that we trust, politicians that we trust and believe in. And so why would we spend money? A lot of these are working class communities. You know, people don't have a lot of extra money. Why would we spend money doing, you know, put, making our homes more fire resistant? Why would we spend money every year doing that defensible space pruning within 100 feet around homes that, you know, we know now is so effective because the fire is not going to reach the town, right? And, and that's, what, that's what the community of Paradise, the town of Paradise, was told for years and years before the campfire occurred in 2018 in November. And thousands and thousands of acres um, on the, the eastern side of, of the, the city, of the town, um, in the northern of Nevada were, were logged in the previous decade in particular. Uh, lots of post-fire logging on public and private lands, removal of dead trees, uh, lots of commercial thinning, uh, logging projects removing live trees, you know, including a lot of mature and old growth trees under the guise of thinning, which is typical. And when the campfire burned, when it started, the point of origin was just on the eastern side of all that logging. And the winds were blowing it westward. West and southwest, 50 plus mile an hour wind gusts, hot, dry, windy conditions. And once that ignition happened, that fire was going to move toward the town of Paradise. There was nothing that was going to prevent it from reaching the town. The difference is, is that once it hit those logged areas in particular, it, it sped up. It really moved fast. For a forest fire, we're talking two and a half, three miles per hour, which is, like I said, really fast. And given that it only was only like 16 miles away from the town in the first place when it started, it got there really, really quickly. And it burned through those logged areas rapidly and very intensely. And it went up over ridge and down through the valleys and up over ridge. And it reached the town of Paradise, by my estimate, two or three hours earlier than it would have otherwise reached the town but for all the logging, if it hadn't been for the logging. And people didn't have much time to evacuate. There was poor evacuation potential. The town is basically on a ridge. 
And, um, you know, they couldn't evacuate in the direction of the fire because, you know, you don't want to go toward the flames. And one of the evacuation routes was too close to the flames and that got shut down. And so you have a town of, you know, tens of thousands of people trying to get out one evacuation route. People were just leaving their cars in the road and running. And 86 people lost their lives. Yeah. And 14,000 homes, over 14,000 homes were burned. And that was preventable. That didn't have to happen. You know, when when communities are given the, the information and the support, not mandates, you know, but the support you know the the assistance, the, the 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 labor and the and the resources to do the work, um, to do the defensible space pruning, which is not logging; it's just pruning a hundred feet around each home, to do simple things like installing ember-proof vents to prevent those flaming embers that are driven by the winds from getting forced through those old coarse wire mesh attic vents. You know, a lot of the ignitions are caused by that. Simple things like installing rain gutter guards so an ember won't land on the roof and roll down into three-inch thick layer of dry pine needles and leaves, you know, and cause ignition. Simple things save homes. When that's done, when that work is done, when homeowners, when communities are given the support by local, state, federal agencies to do the work, over 99% of homes survive and people and their animals get out safely. And if they don't have time to get out safely, you know, there's fire safe shelters in communities, you know, with smoke filters that can be created. There's all kinds of ways to do this right. And we have lots of real world examples of that. But when it's not done right, we're seeing tragic consequences. Paradise was one. We saw two more last year. Again, places I know, places I love. The town of, you know, Grizzly Flats is gone, mostly gone now in the Caldor fire. Thousands and thousands of acres were commercially logged under the guise of thinning around the town on yeah. national forest lands at taxpayer expense. That's what the fire ripped through the fastest. It burned through that burning mostly at high intensity. And about three quarters of Grizzly Flats is gone now. This incredible horror. There, Greenville right? is gone, mostly gone. I used to stay there when I was doing doctoral, my doctoral dissertation research. I would stay in the old hotel at the town, the main town intersection on Main Street. I would eat my breakfast and get my coffee at the little local diner across the street from the old hotel. Um, it's gone now, you know, because that's the, the, the town was sold this dangerous myth and they didn't do the work. They didn't have the resources. They didn't have the support. They weren't given the information and they were fed a dangerous lie that somehow these logging projects out there in the wildlands, way out there in the forest, up there on the ridge, a mile away, half a mile away, two miles away, somehow it's going to stop the fire and save them. And the fire just burned faster through that. That was the Dixie fire last year. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing this in fire after fire after fire. And yet we're also seeing the opposite when communities, usually more affluent ones, like in the South Lake, you know, South Lake Tahoe and Myers area, in the Tahoe Basin, these are rich communities. They don't need the government assistance. They have the money. They're putting on their ember-proof fence. You know, they're doing their defensible space work. They had the information, but they also had the money. And, um, and the fire stopped at the defensible space. The Caldor fire, instead of burning the towns down, it stopped right there. And then it, it, embers went to the other side of the highway and it kept going, but it didn't burn the, ta- the homes down. It was successful. It works. We know it works. And we know what doesn't work. We know what leads to tragedy. And so when I see politicians, both Republicans and Democrats, like the Biden administration is proposing right now, when I see them trying to double down on backcountry logging, and double, doubling down on using billions of dollars of taxpayer money to subsidize that logging and calling it community protection, 
to me, I'm, I, I think just it shocks the conscience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially that part of it, you know, the, the, the horror that you are doing precisely the wrong thing. Uh, you're saving the town. You're protecting the town. And that's the intention, and that's the claim, and yet it's the exact opposite. And this is partly, like, again, you would wonder why we didn't think this through, the simple physics that a fire needs wind, a fire needs air. And if you increase the aeration, why wouldn't that increase the intensity? The thinking there is, is hard to understand, you know, why why we would think that that was the right way to do it. But it seems to be what uh, psychologists and philosophers call motivated reasoning. You know, the thing you want, and you you find the way to make it make sense to you so you can get what you want. But yeah, it's horrible. Um, you know, having been evacuated, and, and I really thought I lost everything in one of the large fires here. I, I Just psychologically, like I had to sit through that night thinking everything's gone and really trying to come to terms with that because there wasn't time, you know, and the place I lived was remote, couldn't get things, you know, it was like a, you know, quarter mile hike to the car. Um, I, I, I can only imagine what people who actually lost everything had to go through for no good reason. And this yep. is just such a weird thing that this is how we've set the culture up. That it's you speak a, about the politics of fear, but there's also a culture of ignorance, and then there is a an, an economy of craving. So really, it's all there. There's the fear and the craving, and then there's the fundamental ignorance. Because, and that's one thing I you know, wanted to talk about too. And and just there are a, a few issues. Just to finish the ecology, I'm going to come back to the to these other two issues. To finish the ecology, I just want to touch on the last sort of as, major aspect of the myth. Okay, so we recognize the horrors of when, when these fires are burning, where where human beings live, and and then we recognize well, but they are they ha, they play a role when they are in the appropriate place. The other aspect of the myth seems to be the story that okay, when we had a high intensity fire, that's it, everything's dead, it's a moonscape. Now we got to go in and log. And the logging, I want to just acknowledge, too, when we had this major, major fire where I got evacuated, they went in, of course, to do the post-logging. And man, I saw redwood, just truck after truck of of killed redwoods. And for me, that's sad, too, because we're killing these sentient beings. I mean, I know this is, you know, the science on this is difficult for us to understand, but there's a sentience that we're destroying one way or the other, you know, whatever you want to think of it as the forest, as a living thing, and all the beings that live there, if you just want to say the deer are, are sentient, whatever, that's fine. But that we destroy all of this. And I saw truck after truck of these redwoods going with not even a char mark when they were supposedly, you know, going to, to clean up after the fire. So this idea that it's not just the snags. Um, but But anyway, so... Let's just uh, see if you can give us that myth and the, the correction to it, right? So that everything's dead. We're sorry. It's never going to come back. It's you know, it's it's a mega fire, and you know, so we have to go in and save it. <laughs> right. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And, and and by the way, you know, the 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 example from your own personal experience that you just related that is very very common. You know, when they're doing these post fire logging operations, the the term they use is dead and dying trees. And, you know, my wife and I started asking this question, you know, years and years ago, before I even went back to graduate school to get my PhD, you know, her question was, well, wait a minute, what does dying mean? I'm dying. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> right? I'm, what does dying mean? You yeah. know, this is, you know, you're, 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 are, we, are you addressing existential questions yes. here now that, you know, in, in the forest management context? What's going on? So we started looking into it, you know, peeling away the layers of the onion. And, 
And we found out that that word dying is being abused to a spectacular degree. I mean, trees, old growth trees with barely any, any, you know, any scorch on them at all are being cut down by the thousands in these post-fire logging projects on public lands and private lands, um, you know, un- under the, the guise of, you know, dead and dying trees and post-fire restoration and fuel reduction. So I just wanted to say that because, you know, it's your, your experience is, is, uh, is, is, is common elsewhere as, as well. And people should um, know, like we're talking, yeah. these are redwoods, the price for redwood chips and redwood mulch. I mean, you don't understand the money that we're talking about here. There's a, a lot of money for killing redwoods. You know, I mean, it's like it's California's ivory in a way. I mean, because it's done on such a large scale. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the redwoods for a second. You know, just just you know, fire in the redwoods. Uh, you know, we, we've we've had some some recent uh, significant fires in in redwood forest ecosystems in California, and and so we know what happens. You know, if you observe these areas, if they haven't been logged after the fire, because you know, basically that destroys the evidence. But we have lots of examples now. You know, and. And uh, we've got studies now that have been published uh, after. And what's interesting is that in, in redwood forests, uh, similar to other forest types, many of the trees that look dead initially are not dead. And that's especially true for redwoods, especially true. Redwoods can be, they can look absolutely kill. I mean, charred all the way to the top. And the year after the fire, they just produce new green branches all up and down the trunk, especially in the top half of the tree. They produce their new green, bright green uh, foliage and branches, and they just grow and lengthen. And every single year after that, it's like the proverbial lizard regrowing its tail. You know, it, it just recreates its crown structure like nothing happened. Then you, you can go into some of these mature redwood groves. And if you know what you're looking for, you can see the evidence of the older high intensity fires that happened many, many decades earlier. Uh, the crowns just regrew. Um, and um, it's incredible. So, you know, the, um, the notion that fires killing the redwoods is, is really, really uh, misleading because the fact is that redwoods are, are one of the most, if not the most, fire-resistant conifer on the face of the planet. And um, they're highly adapted, not just to fire in, in general, but also to moderate and high-intensity fire. Um, and I found that to be true in the Sierra Nevada, too, true with uh, ponderosa pine and Jeffrey pine and other species, uh, that a lot of the trees that looked at initially are not dead. The needles may all be killed. And so you, you, won't, you may not see a single green needle on the tree. It may be all brown needles. But the buds at the end of the branches survive. And in the summer, one year later after the fire, uh, they produce new green foliage. And so, again, yeah, a lot of the trees that looked at are not. And for many decades, those trees have been getting cut down after fires uh, under this uh, uh, dead and dying uh, notion. And uh, they've been cutting down perfectly live trees. I published the first study on that. I call that flushing, that phenomenon where the tree looks dead, but it produces new, new needles. I published that in 2009. So... The other thing that you mentioned, and this is absolutely, tr- you know, the, the part of the myth is that if it really does burn at high intensity in a particular area and really does kill most of the mature trees, 
which really doesn't happen in redwood ecosystems. I mean, they really, they really just, you know, pretty much regrow their crowns after fire, almost no matter how hot they burn. But, you know, in, in the mixed conifer forests and ponderosa pine forests, you know, if it really does burn hot and it's a true crown fire in certain patches, it does kill the trees. And um, the question is, well, what happens then, right, after in the year after the fire or two years later? And um, the, the narrative, the myth is that if, it, if you have a big high intensity fire patch and it's too far away from the nearest live surviving tree, that the wind can't blow the seeds from that live tree far enough and it just won't regenerate. You know, or if it does, it'll take 200 years or more uh, for, for, to see natural seedlings and saplings regrowing in that area. It'll just be a barren wasteland. That's what we, that's what we hear. And that somehow getting there with bulldozers and chainsaws and cutting that, clear cutting that area, um, and then planting the little tree plantations, you know, with nursery grown trees, somehow that's going to be restoration and reforestation. But, you know, that's the, that's the myth that's being sold to people. The reality is that no matter how big the high intensity fire patch is, even if it's you know three four thousand acres, which is very rare, but there are patches that big, even bigger, um, which is natural. You know, we had patches historically that were 30,000 acres in some cases, high intensity fire patches. You know, mostly they're smaller, but sometimes the big ones happen, and that's true now too. And you know, there are places that you know I've done research on this. I've published studies on it. You know, we we're talking more than a thousand feet way over a thousand feet in some cases from the nearest live surviving tree in any direction. And, um, and you may not see uh, the, the, the conifer seedlings and saplings regrowing in the first year after the fire. You may not even see it three years post-fire, but all of a sudden here you come four years, five years post-fire, there's 300 per acre. And then they start growing they start growing really fast. And then the growth accelerates. And there are places in the Rim Fire, for example, a 257,000 acre fire in the Sierra Nevada that I, I, I've been studying since it burned in, two, in you know, eight years ago. There are areas where I saw almost no uh, natural um, post-fire regrowth of conifers for the first three, four years post-fire. Most areas there was plenty in, in you know, even just you know, two or three years post-fire. But there were definitely areas in some of these big high-intensity fire patches, way in the interior, um, uh, which is a small percentage of the fire as a whole, but, you know, it, it matters a lot to people, freaks people out, you know, thinking that the forest is just never going to regrow. And, and there were areas where I just saw very little. There were shrubs, there were oaks, there were wildflowers, beautiful. There's lots of other, you know, things. There's lots of woodpeckers because of all the snags and bluebirds and lots of wildlife. But, but I didn't, I saw very, very little natural post-fire conifer regeneration. And I thought, well, maybe this is one of the exceptions to the rule. You know, it's, it's only about 2% of the total forest, forest fire area. Uh, but, you know, I don't want to dismiss that as insignificant. And I came back in at five years post-fire. And there were 300 uh, to 350 per acre of naturally regenerating ponderosa pine and, and incense cedar and white fir, um, mostly ponderosa pine and sugar pine, um, seedlings and saplings, three or 300 to 350 per acre. And it was amazing how fast they were growing. They were already, you know, three, four, you know, plus feet tall. They've been growing so fast that now in many of those areas, they're over 10, 12 feet tall. And they're, they're twice my height or more. And, um, and, and there's more new seedlings growing in every single year. It's extraordinary. What do you and think so it accounts just, for that delay? Yeah. Well, 
how do you how do you explain the delay? Yeah, what do you think words? accounts for the? Yeah, why why would it take that long? And I mean, the, why is it this suddenly? Why did it wait? It's like they were all meditating in there, and they all just yeah. <laughs> came out <laughs> in, in force. It's interesting. I mean, the short answer is I don't think we fully know. Okay, good. I, you know, there, I don't think we fully know, which is cool. I mean, I love yeah. I love the things where we still have a mystery. We, I, I can make some educated guesses. Okay. But I don't know which one is most correct. I know it's partly true of all of them. Okay. Um, one thing that happens is when a fire burns at high intensity in a particular area, um, some of the key nutrients in the soil are volatilized. They, you know, like nitrogen. And interestingly, um, a lot of the native plants uh, that are, are, have evolved to depend not just on fire, but in, in high intensity fire in order to effectively germinate and reproduce. A lot of the native shrubs, for example, Ceanothus species in particular. And these species, by and large, are nitrogen fixing uh-huh. plants. In other yeah. words, they pull nitrogen out of the air right. and stick it in the soil. And that's a process that takes a a bit of time. And so every year that passes, there's more nitrogen in the soil and there's more of the perfect mix of sun and shade from the shrubs, these flowering shrubs, these flowering nitrogen fixing shrubs that are providing not only uh, soil nitrogen, pulling it out of the air, but also providing that perfect mix of sun and shade for the conifer seedlings that start growing through the shrubs or underneath the cover of the shrubs, which is what you see commonly. The, what the, the, the logging industry and the forest service is telling the public is, that, oh, well, the shrubs are competing with the conifers. They're, they're preventing the conifers from growing. It's actually the opposite. Um, the, the shrubs are helping the conifers grow and they're creating the conditions, the perfect conditions to allow the conifers to grow and thrive. And of course, the shrubs only get so tall and the conifers grow over the tops of the shrubs and then the shrubs start dying back because they're getting shaded out. The shrubs need a lot of sunlight. And once the conifers and the oaks get to a certain density and height, um, then, then you, you, you get a lot less shrub cover. But, but in, that, in that interim period of time, what the shrubs are doing is basically over the first three, four years is creating those perfect conditions that allow the conifer seedlings to start establishing and growing. But the other thing that happens, which I think is equally cool and interesting, is that um, a forest ecosystem is not just trees. And it's not just live trees. A forest is live trees of all sizes, including the small ones. It's dead trees. It's standing dead trees. It's down logs. It's wildflowers. It's it's non-conifers like oaks and dogwoods. Um, it's shrubs like Ceanothus species, you know, like whitethorn and, and, and deerbrush. Um, it's all of these things. And it's also animals. It's birds. It's small mammals. And the thing is, is that sometimes, you know, foresters, you know, are in the logging business, you know, they think about a forest as being just, you know, the only thing that matters to them is the live trees or the dead trees, if they can cut them down soon enough, so that they're still usable for lumber and they can make money off them, but they're forgetting about what a forest really is. And, and so they forget that birds and small mammals are dispersing seeds all over the forest at any distance from live trees into these interior areas of the large high intensity fire patches, chipmunks and different seed caching birds that, uh, that, that do that are dispersing these seeds all over the place. And that process, you know, takes a certain amount of time and it picks up year after year 
And so it's this very, very complex, interconnected, and really quite beautiful system. The, the, the elegance of it and the complexity of it is, is really kind of awe-inspiring. Yeah, they're bringing nutrients, too, as they scamper around. That's they, right. They deliver. They give back. We don't give back. But um, so th- what we have then is this mythological myth, let's say fantasy, because myth, I, I sometimes like to protect that word, um, you know, reading Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell, we need our myths. But we have right. this lie, this not helpful lie, this this mis- misdirection that, that it's a moonscape, it's dead, we need to go in there, and um, of course, we're going to log and uh, then we'll try to plant some trees ourselves, and they, of course, they might use pesticides, and they might essentially, because of the equipment and the activity, they might make it a moonscape. But but the truth is that if we just left it alone, the fi- we would see that fire is not a destructive force, but part of the creativity of the forest, that the forest needs it. And it immediately, and again, here you wonder why we hear people slash and burn <laughs> in order to grow crops. You think, why, why would we think that nothing would grow just because there was a fire? We, people are plant, making fires in yeah. order to grow things. But here, it's the healthy, adapted system. And so t- talk about what you would see, this, the, the creative part. You mentioned some of it and, and how these beings yeah. need, like, they need there to be snags and burnt logs and all this. Yeah, you know, so you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, fire in our forests is is not something. It's not destructive force. It's not something that removes habitat, eliminates habitat. It creates habitat. It doesn't destroy life. It creates life. Now, it's true that you know there's always some small percentage of animals that can die in a fire. You know, it could be smoke inhalation. It could be they're too close to the flames and there's a gust of wind. Uh, but again, forest fires move very, very slowly. So usually they can just simply walk out of the way or if it's a snake slither out of the way or go into a hole in the ground or just simply fly out of the way or move out of the way. Um, some small percentage will die. It's much, much smaller than people think it is. But there are some. But mostly what the fires do is create habitat that allow wildlife species and plants to thrive and reproduce and increase their populations. In these high-intensity fire patches, these places that we've been mischaracterizing and demonizing as catastrophic and moonscapes and nuked and all these other terms, destroyed, damaged um, for years. They're typically the places, if they are not subjected to logging after fires, if we just have natural regeneration, these places typically have some of the very highest, if not the very highest levels of wildlife abundance and uh, species diversity. They are ecological treasures. They are absolutely extraordinary. They're some of the greenest places on the entire landscape, some of the most colorful, some of the loudest, most cacophonous. You know, you've got the, the birds and you've got the small mammals and you've got the, um, you know, the bees, um, uh, you know, attracted to all the flower, the, the wildflowers and the flowering shrubs. Um, you've got the woodpeckers, you know, pecking through uh, the bark of the fire killed trees to get those grubs of those native wood boring beetles that depend on fire-killed trees to reproduce and have for millions of years, these native beetles, which are so misunderstood and demonized, but in many ways, these native beetles, the wood-boring beetles and the bark beetles, they're the cornerstone of the entire forest ecosystem. Because if you don't have natural processes that kill trees, individual trees, clumps of trees, larger patches of trees, whether it's drought, whether it's a high-intensity fire patch, 
whether it's a, a, an extreme wind event that snaps off the tops of the trees in certain areas, you know, it's a number of different ways this can happen. If you don't have these natural processes, usually it's fire that kills patches of trees, um, you can't have the beetles. These are native beetle species that have evolved to depend on dead or dying trees to reproduce. And their larvae depend on that. If you don't have the larvae of those beetles, then you don't have any food for the woodpeckers because the woodpeckers have evolved to depend on the larvae of the beetles, which they find under the bark of the, the dead or dying trees. And they eat these, these beetle larvae by the thousands every single year. The dead trees are softer than live trees, which allows the woodpeckers to excavate nest cavities in those dead trees. They excavate two, three, four new nest cavities every single year. They're always hedging their bets. They pick the one they like the best every year, but all the nest cavities they create every year in these dead trees, these snags, the ones they don't use, those are available to all the other cavity nesting species in the forest that have to have tree cavities to raise their young every year to reproduce, uh, but they can't create their own. They need the woodpeckers to do that. So we're talking about bluebirds. We're talking about nuthatches. Uh, we're talking about flying squirrels and chipmunks, and dozens and dozens of small mammal and bird species that need the woodpeckers to do that. But the woodpeckers can't do that unless they've got the dead trees, unless they've got the, the, the food source in the form of these, these beetle larvae. And the beetle larvae can't be there unless they've got the natural processes that kill the patches of trees in the first place. And then, of course, all of those species provide food for, for raptors like Cooper's hawks and, and goshawks and all the native flowering uh, plants, wildflowers and native flowering shrubs that grow in in the understory attract flying insects, native flying insects. Uh, that provides food for flycatching birds and bats, um, provides habitat, that shrub layer and the naturally regrowing uh, conifers and oaks, um, all that natural understory regrowth that's so rich and wonderful. Uh, provides habitat for small mammals. It provides food for, for deer and elk. Um, and uh, as a result, there's lots of food for, for bears and, uh, and wolves and, and, uh, and, and mountain lions. And so everybody's getting what they need in these large mixed intensity fires. Because not all species like the, the, the high intensity fire patches that, that create this snag forest habitat. Some species evolved uh, to really be associated with low intensity fire. So you want that mix. You want the low, you want the moderate, you want the high. Everybody gets what they need. But we need to understand the value of these high intensity fire patches and how mixed intensity fire is as necessary and natural in our forests as, as sun and rain. Yeah. In these ecosystems. Yeah. I mean, you're touching this incredible interwovenness of things, this being needs, that being, that being, needs, and the mutuality and how they really need, because the, even the ones who need the high fire intensity, they often do the bed and breakfast, as you like to put it. They want to, they want to live in the dense old growth stuff that hasn't been burned, but they want to be really close to the high intensity to catch prey and for other reasons. And the, the woodpecker is so adapted, as you point out, that when they're on a burnt snag when they're on a, a you know a tree that's really been blackened and burnt you can't see them they're because they're they got the black back the, they're they're meant to be there and not be right. seen and the beetles as you point out also they are they are adapted to sense the smoke or the tree that is sick for some reason and and, and is really ready to be 
helped into you know the next phase of its existence you know just like we we need that sometimes yeah. as humans we recognize when okay i'm getting old it's getting to be my time to say goodbye and the tree sends those signals and when it's not ready it's trying to say no don't come over here right and so the the beetles want to go to the place that burned right yeah, that's exactly what they do. I mean, these are interesting. You know, like the wood boring beetles, there are dozens of, of species, uh, native species. They evolved, you know, f- the countless millennia ago. They're native species. Um, you know, and, and it, 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 it can't be overemphasized how important it is to understand that these processes, these species, these ecosystem processes, these habitat types and the species, plant and animal that depend on them, um, they, they predate all of humanity all of humanity by, by not just millions, but tens of millions of years in many cases. And again, this is deep evolutionary history. And for the wood boring beetles, they, uh, depending on the species, they've evolved receptors in their bodies to detect wildfires in forests by heat or by smoke, some by smoke, some by heat. And these are big. These beetles are, are, are pretty large, you know, depending on the species, some are really big. I mean, it can be over two inches long, like half an inch, almost wide big, big beetles, and they're good flyers, and they will fly right for the fire. And they will show up and they will land on these fire-killed trees right after the fire has passed and the, and, and, and the tree has cooled down enough to land. And they lay their eggs and the larva develops and it bores through the charred bark of, this, of these fire-killed trees and, and the, the larva uh, develops there over the course of time into an adult and then later emerges an adult as an adult and then goes through another cycle, another dead tree. And then soon, of course, they have to um, start going to uh, finding the new fires um, because uh, the dead trees are not great habitat forever. You know, after the bark flakes off or the trees fall on the ground. Um, but that takes years. And again, you know, while they're in those, those snags, that's, that's the food source for the woodpeckers, you know, which have this perfect camouflage in this, the snag forest, you know, where the trees are black and the woodpeckers that depend on the fire killed trees are mostly black. Um, the blackback woodpecker, which I've been studying for about 20 years now, is entirely black on its back. And it's the one that is most strongly associated with and dependent on these large high intensity fire patches. One blackback woodpecker eats 13,500 wood boring beetle larvae every single year. Wow. And it shows how why we need them, why we need them. And it's this critical process. It's almost like, a, you know, we have keystone species and we also have critical processes. Fire is just part of wind, too. You know, like when they found, when they did those the biodome experiment, they tried to put trees in there and they found out the trees got all, they weren't trees. Why? There was no wind to make them. They were all loopy and floppy, right? And we need the wind. And that's just like us, too. You know, we, we need challenges in our lives. You know, stress is a bad word, but stress uh, can also mean, you know, as, as you, maybe you've seen Kelly McGonigal's work and the idea that if you, well, if you think stress is dangerous and bad, then you're, it's going to be challenging for your system. But if it's yeah. just like, hey, I have some challenges and I'm, I'm rising to the occasion, then it turns out they can, they can promote creativity. Now, there's this other, okay, let's touch the final thing. If you, do you have time to touch the final bit, the political dimension? Sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I was very aware of, as a, I started in um, philosophy of science, because, you know, that's kind of like the gold standard for epistemology in our culture, what we refer to as science. In other words, this, this is what we take to be the, the high bar of when you can say you know something as you find out what the relevant science says. Now, I've since 
um, gotten a lot more critical in a lot of ways, uh, just because if you're in a culture that has some fundamental confusions, then the thing that you refer to as science is, is going to be complicit in that. So all the, it's not just the, the things that we've been talking about, but that science has gone all together with the extractive orientation of the culture. You know, you don't get to, to build a, a large Hadron Collider or a space shuttle without massive intervention into natural systems that are probably not done skillfully and may not be justified in some cases. There's a lot of difficulties with our science, but I'm also quite sensitive to the fact that I still go to the relevant science when I can. I want to know what it says. It's not the first or last word for me, but okay. Now, your approach is so much more uh, in the direction of where I would think science and a health culture would, would should be, which is that it, it it's doing a lot primarily to teach us how to live with the world and appreciate it and understand it. And and you even say, well, part of what I do, I spend as much time just taking people out to these places so they can see them and then giving them, telling them what I know, sharing that knowledge. I do as much of that as doing the, the kind of hardcore research. But in this whole context, what I'm finally getting to is we're certainly part of the culture's problem is an anti-science, anti who knows what? I mean, it's difficult to difficult to put it. But come on, we, we've seen in the pandemic where um, you know the government's lying to us and the scientists are lying, and here we have this. Uh, there are serious issues where there's a conflict here, where you know people from my part of the world might have said, you know, I grew up in cold country and might have said, you know, keep the government off my forest after they read this, right? But that's not the what it's supposed to be if we had a real democracy, but. I, I think I guess the first question is how do you how would you explain the difference? You know, okay, you're then you're just another scientist, and if I don't agree with all this, and I think we should manage the forests, um, there's this question of why should we listen to you and your group of scientists? You know, for instance, because then somebody could say, well, hey, there's a group of scientists who object to the whole climate change, and they, they, hey, they've got you know they've signed their petition or whatever, and you're saying, well, we're independent scientists and we're challenging what the government is saying about these things, and we're even challenging other scientists. Can you can you touch sense, sense the mess that I'm trying to touch and ask us how can we reflect on this? How what what do, should we say in this context where there's so much paranoia? confusion, anti-science. How do you see yourself relating to these, you know, these complex issues? And it's okay if you're not sure what to, where to go with that. Oh, no, I, I, I am. I think in, in many ways you've asked, you know, the most important question um, right there. Because I have this conversation with people all the time, with environmental reporters, with, with uh, um, elected officials and their staff, um, you know, people who, who really need to get it right you know, to inform the public or make good decisions on behalf of the public. And, and they, they come to me and in, in, in all sincerity and say, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to conclude because I'm hearing one thing from, from this group of people. And some of them are scientists and I'm hearing something totally different from this other group of people, including you. Um, and, and, you know, I just makes me want to throw up my hands and say, I don't know what to think. And um, that's by design. <laughs> that is by design. That is where the folks making money off this misinformation. And I appreciate your note about myths. I think it's better, better put to say it's misinformation and disinformation. 
the entities and the people making money off the disinformation. That is exactly where they want policymakers. That's where they want the general public. That's where they want environmental reporters. They want people confused, frustrated, bewildered to the point where they just say, you know what? I can't figure it out. I'm just going to, I'm just going to not get involved. The problem is this. We need to understand, we need to have a reckoning on this issue as a society and come to an understanding that the issue of forests and wildfire and the whole conversation about what, you know, is euphemistically called forest management is fundamentally no different from the conversation that we were having as a society back in the 1950s and 1960s about cigarettes and human health. It's fundamentally not any different from the conversation that we started having in the 1970s and 1980s and even more in the 1990s about climate change and climate scientists. In every case, there are people with PhDs and the training and a publication record who with regard to cigarettes, we're saying it's perfectly healthy. Um, there were people with PhDs saying there is no such thing as climate change. It's a, it's a hoax. It's a big misunderstanding. And what we came to understand as a society is that the people with the PhDs, with the degrees, with the publication records, who were telling us that cigarettes were healthy and fine, the people with the PhDs who were telling us that there is no such thing as climate change, it's a hoax or a misunderstanding, but those people, by and large, almost entirely, were paid by those industries that were profiting from the activities that were driving climate change, that were affecting human health with cigarettes, um, chemical manufacturers, same thing. We came to understand that. So now when there's a news story, um, you don't have half the people quoted, half the scientists quoted saying, yes, climate change is real. And half the scientists quoted saying, no, it's a hoax because reporters understand that the scientists who are saying it's not real are funded by the fossil fuel industry. Um, and, um, and so there's a recognition, an explicit recognition of that. And, and everyone weights that accordingly. We need to start doing the same thing when it comes to forests and fire and the whole conversation about so-called forest management. We need to understand that the scientists, even if they're university scientists who are telling us um, that we need to do a lot more logging and that somehow logging is a fire management solution and it's going to be good for climate resilience or it's going to restore the forest or it's going to curb the fires and save our forest ecosystems or stop the fires from reaching towns. Um, the scientists who are saying that are funded by logging interests, almost to a person. I mean, yeah, there's the few exceptions of people just have a well-meaning, good faith misunderstanding of the data. Uh, there are those people, but, but almost entirely, we're talking about folks who are funded by logging interests, whether it's an agency that profits from logging, like the U.S. Forest Service, or just logging industry trade associations um, that fund a lot of scientists. We need to understand that. And we need to understand that a lot of the politicians, Republican and Democrat, who are promoting logging are getting campaign contributions from logging interests. And, um, and that has an influence. And so we, we came to understand as a society that when we look at the science and when we, look, when we listen to scientists, we always have to understand what their funding mechanism is. We have to understand if they have a financial conflict of interest because they're tied to profit-making industries 
that have a certain agenda that has nothing to do with public health or science or climate change mitigation or biodiversity conservation. And, and we, we, we treat their views and their voices differently, and we should. We need to come to the same reckoning with regard to forests and fire. Mm-hmm. And we haven't done that yet. And when we do look at it, what we find is that the scientists who are pushing these, these, these misconceptions, this, this series of disinformation, it's really about three dozen individuals. And mm. they are funded, heavily funded, by logging interests, mostly by the U.S. Forest Service, but not entirely. Some of them just by other logging, you know, logging corporations. And there are hundreds of independent scientists saying the exact opposite. Scientists who have no funding relationship with the Forest Service or the logging industry, scientists like myself who are independent. And the scientists funded by the Forest Service have tried for years to debate us on the evidence. They've tried to go toe-to-toe with us on the scientific evidence in the scientific journals. They keep losing because they don't have the science on their side. And what they've started doing in recent years is going uh, is making personal attacks against independent scientists, um, dozens of us. And like I said, I mean, really, there's over two, two to three hundred of us, um, depending on the issue. And they've identified the, the few dozen ones who they think are most threatening to them and their agenda. And they attack us on social media. They personally attack us. They attack our research in all kinds of ways that have no substantive credibility. Um, and of course, we respond as, as we can. But a lot of reporters are misled. The general public is misled. Uh, policymakers are misled. And this has led to a, a really serious problem. But, you know, this, it's not so different from what we've seen in the scientific community between scientists funded by other industries like chemical manufacturers, like the cigarette, the, the tobacco industry, like the fossil fuel industry, attacking independent scientists, attacking their, their professional credibility, attacking their personal integrity. We've seen the exact same thing in those industries. It's been discussed in a number of very, very uh, well-researched books and articles over the years and decades and the same thing is happening right now on this issue. Yeah. And the independence, I mean, this is the, of course, this narrative gets taken up by people who, you know, people will say, oh, I, I'm, I'm an independent scientist. I'm not, I, I don't, I don't uh, my funding doesn't depend on climate um, change being real, right? I mean, this, or during the pandemic, people would say, oh, you know, well, you know, that I'm an independent uh, epidemiologist, or well, some of the people who are, uh, who are raising their voices are not epidemiologists, actually, but people will say, well, I'm an independent physician or whatever. Uh, the other issue seems to be that that's clear here is that you're also saying where the consensus is, because there are, are hundreds of, so like in climate science, we have this huge, 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 huge number of scientists who have reached consensus. Of course, some think things are worse, others, okay, whatever, but, but there's still this massive majority saying this is where the data is pointing us and then it's a minority who are making this but we th- we we sort of react like oh my god they're, they're they have a phd but it's like 10 people and the same thing here there are met there's this as you say some of the research that you're touching on is some of the most well established data that we have in science in ecological science and it's giving us a, a different picture than this smaller number of people so even if we were to say oh well you know you're independent who knows you could be a crack but um, the other thing that I think, and maybe we can finish here, because I, I mean, there's, I wish we could just talk a lot longer, but I know that people have difficulty with, you know, time demands, and it's a lot to listen to something. Sure. Um, it seems like the most important thing, and, and maybe you, it, you can riff off this, you know, wherever you want to go, it seems like the most important thing 
for people to understand is that somehow we need to protect the forest because they know what they're doing. We need to focus on protecting human beings who are close to the forest by focusing mainly on their home and from the home to some smaller distance out. And that we have to spend more time in the forest so that we know why we're protecting them and to appreciate them. Because this is the only other question that, you know, that we can leave is, um, you know, I, I, I do struggle with how we will solve this problem without a deeper cultural revolution. And at the very least, if people could start to, re to revere, to have some reverence for forests and actual reverence for the human life, that's near the forest and the other lives that are related to the forest. And therefore that takes some kind of being in the forest. Um, I know that you also take people, I mean, people are doing forest bathing, but you're really taking people out and trying to educate them on what is there to love and what is the wonder. I don't know. Can you say anything summary there, you know, about, <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know what I'm asking. I'm just trying to say, how do we take good steps to see the medicine that a forest is, the medicine that a fire is, and really revere it and want to take care of it, not because we're some tree-hugging idiot, but because we say, no, you know, we need this. And it's yeah. important. And it's important not to be in there managing it. It's important yeah. to let it manage itself somehow and to revere what that means. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think, I think there's a couple of things there. I mean, part of it is we just need to increase the connection between people and communities and the natural environment including and especially forests, and, and in particular areas that, that uh, have experienced wildfire recently, you know, especially if they haven't been destroyed by post-fire logging. We need to increase that connection. I do everything I can, but we need to increase on a larger societal scale. We need to increase access to nature, access to nature for communities. That's incredibly important. Um, and, and I think that facilitates the deeper goal, which I think is – what the, what the scientists who are not funded by logging interests are saying, the scientists who greatly outnumber the ones who are funded by logging interests and who are telling us we need to do more logging, what, what, the, what the scientists who, uh, who are not funded by the logging industry are saying, hundreds of us, and we've said this in numerous letters to Congress recently, is that not only are forests, including forests that have burned in wildfires, incredibly important for biodiversity, and we need to protect them for biodiversity to address the extinction crisis. But in addition, what the science is telling us now, and this is hundreds of climate scientists and forest ecologists telling this to Congress, we need to understand that we cannot overcome the climate crisis only by getting away from fossil fuels. It's essential. It's necessary. We can't solve the climate crisis if we don't do that. But it's not enough. Not at this point. It's not even close. We have to do that. But as we're shifting away from fossil fuels to genuinely clean energy and to just reduce consumption of energy, we have to dramatically increase protection of forests in this country and around the world. And we have to set an example here in the U.S. And that means we're going to have to start shifting away from wood products and from consumption of wood products. It's not going to happen overnight, but we need to start that process now and continue it, just like we're starting the process of starting to shift away and shifting away from fossil fuels. Because we need to stop putting all the carbon into the atmosphere um, that we're, that we're uh, putting up there. But we also need to protect our forests from logging so they can absorb a lot more CO2 from the atmosphere. 
because our atmospheric CO2 concentrations are far, far too high. And once we put it up there through activities like fossil fuel consumption and logging, a lot of people don't realize logging is one of the biggest sources of carbon emissions annually in this country and around the world. Once we put it up there, it stays up there for a very, very long time, unless natural ecosystems are allowed to absorb it. And if we keep extracting uh, materials from our natural ecosystems, especially trees from forests, knowing that most of that carbon goes in the atmosphere and it undermines the carbon sequestration capacity of forests, um, we, we, we undermine our ability to overcome the climate crisis. So we need to connect with these natural ecosystems and understand them, especially forests, and understand what a forest is and increase the human connection to these places so people will be invested emotionally and actually want to protect them. And that serves multiple goals. It, it will help protect communities from wildfire because we'll realize that the solution isn't chainsaws and bulldozers out in the wildlands. It's redirecting those logging subsidies into a jobs program to help create fire safe communities and help save homes and lives. And the only place that we can actually do that, which is in the towns themselves, while we keep the carbon in the forest, just like we're having the conversation about keeping the carbon in the ground. Yeah, absolutely. And because of this interwovenness that you've touched again and again, it's it's that whatever you love, you want to, you still want to take care of the forest. If you love the oceans, well, if the forests aren't there to absorb the carbon, you get more absorption in the oceans, more acidification. If you love rivers and fish, well, they they need the, even they even need fire as you point out in the book. And so this this whole interwovenness means that if you love anything, if you love your kids, if you love your partner, you you got to love the forest who are who are helping to keep this world for us in good good condition that's right that's right i mean everyone has a stake in this it doesn't matter where you are in this country where you are in this world we all need to come together and protect forest ecosystems and other natural habitats that will you know that can store more carbon um for their intrinsic value just because it's the right thing to do um, uh, and preventing species from going extinct, but also for our own self-interest in order to overcome the climate crisis. We call it natural climate solutions or nature-based climate solutions. It's just a protecting natural ecosystems for biodiversity, but also so they can absorb more CO2 from the atmosphere and draw down those dangerously excessive levels we have right now. Well, Chad Hansen, it has been a real pleasure. This has just been a wonderful dialogue with you. Again, everyone, Chad Hansen, a research ecologist and director of the John Muir Project of Earth Island Institute. You can look that up online. And please look for his book. It's, it's, it's a page turner. I'm, I'm serious. I know, it, it's, it's, uh, I know it's, a, it's about forest ecology, but it's a general audience book. It's well written. And it's just a, quite a page turner when you're looking at how he debunks these myths and he gives you the data. And it's inspiring reading. It's called Smokescreen, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. Chad Hansen, thank you for being on Dangerous Wisdom. Thank you so much. And thank you, dear listener, for your practice of dangerous wisdom. This dialogue is in some ways a companion to the dialogue with Derek Jensen on bright green lies and solar-powered samsara or solar-powered suffering. You might want to listen to that one, too. As I've said, wisdom is inherently ecological, wonderful, and wild. And that makes all our contemplations ecological and relational in nature. If you have questions, reflections, or stories about the magic and mystery of forests, or fire, or both, insights into the wisdom, love, and beauty of forests, or fire, or anything related to how we can make a transition 
into sanity and sacredness, magic and mystery, compassion and courage, creativity and insight. Well, do get in touch through dangerouswisdom.org, and we might bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.